Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 12, hear the reading of God's word. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children Than heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Amen. Amen. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we are so blessed, so incredibly privileged to call you by that title, to know that we are children of the Heavenly Father. And let us not take that lightly as we look at your word today and know that these are words from our loving Father who speaks to us his caring, gracious word. Let us receive them, Lord. Let us receive them and be changed and transformed by them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Some may argue, but I would agree that Michael Jackson was the king of pop. And and Michael Jackson was, from a very young age, that charismatic presence. I mean, he he was, from a young age, the the person on the stage that just lit up the room. He, He was full of charisma and passion and joy, and he sang his heart out with the greatest smile. And so everybody kind of fell in love with him and his family But if you know his story, you know that all of that was mostly a front. Later on in life, he opened up about his relationship with his father, or lack thereof, and he talked at length about what it was like growing up with his father as his coach. And his father would often, uh, you know, coach them on, on singing, but also dancing and all the different things. But during those times, he would never let him call him dad or father. He required him to call him Joseph. And so Joseph stood over him during these practices with a belt in hand, yelling and screaming at him, telling him to work, work, work until he got it right. And every time he got it wrong, he would get hit. And so later on, um, Michael, he, he opened up about what it was like. And he said this, he said, Joseph never gave me a childhood. It was always work, work, work. I was never a son. I was only a slave. I was only a slave. Those words resonate in in many people's lives because I think many of us, we know what it's like to live in bondage in the various ways of our life. And many of us, in fact, we know just like he did, we know our steps, but we don't know our sonship. We can get them right, right? We, we know the religious steps when it comes to God as our Father. We, we, we know how to perform well. We know how to read the Bible and pray and go to church and 
you know, do all the things that God has called us to do. We, we've got our list of all the, the obedience that is required of us and the things that we ha, have been told that we need to do this and do that. But, but when it comes to the rest of the relationship, do we only know the steps, but we don't know our sonship? Do, do we not really know what it means to live in the light of, of a God who is our loving Father? Do we know that? I think for many of us, if we were honest this morning, there's kind of this nagging thing in the back of our mind that, that pops up every once in a while that just reminds us that our relationship with God is very distant. It's hard to articulate it. it it's hard to maybe even admit it or to give words to it, but, but it's cold. It's distant. It's, it's disconnected from, from what we thought it would be like to have this relationship with a, with a personal, loving God. And so we feel like what, what really is, is the relationship is, is God is somewhere out there looking over us, yelling at us, work, 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 work. And the moment you get out of line, he's there to do something about it. And what I, I think we're saying in the, or what we're looking at in this text this morning is radically different than a God who's standing out waiting for you to get in trouble. Romans 8 is possibly the most beautiful chapter in the entire Bible. I mean, it, it really does. If you have time this afternoon, before you go to worship night, right, Lacey? Uh, if you have time, just sit down and read Romans 8. It's one of the most beautifully dense, packed passages in all of Scripture of just how, how incredible God's grace is. And in this chapter, Paul is just kind of caught up into the beauty of what God has done in Christ. He goes from his, his life to his death to his resurrection and what that means for us and how it's transformed everything. And he, he starts using these radical categories of change. He, he says we've gone from bondage to freedom. We've gone from death to life. We've gone from guilt to glory. And then he gets to this incredibly radical concept. We've gone from slaves to sons. To sons. And then Paul just kind of sits on that for a while to think about what does it mean that we are sons of our God? This is our new reality. What does it mean to believe it is what we're going to look at. What does it mean to actually live that out? That's what I want to look at this morning. Uh, first, we have to deal with our slavery. And so let's look at the first point is slaves to the flesh. Look at verse 12 with me. It says this, So then, brothers, we are debtors. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, in chapters 6 to 7, to get you caught up real quick, Paul has been wrestling with this uh, condition of sin that we all find ourselves in. And he really speaks to it as a condition. It's not just the behavior that you do. It's not just the, the mistakes you make or the things that come out of your life, but it really is a status. It's a condition of sin that, that really affects everything in your life to the deepest level. And he's been wrestling with that, and so now he, he talks about this word debtor. And if you go back in the previous chapters, he's, he's been unpacking this idea because in our condition of sin, we are debtors to sin. That, that means we have an obligation. We have a master. That, that these sins, they, they reign over us, that, that there's, there's something that is required of us because of our sin. But now, 
In chapter 8, Paul says, sin is, or we've been delivered from that state of sin, and now we are in what? A new state that is a new debtor. So he's using this same word, but this time you're not a debtor to sin, you are a debtor to a new master. You have a new obligation, you have a new status, a new condition, and so you are no longer a slave to what you were before, you have a new master, this savior. And so he starts to contrast what these two conditions were, and he says, if you live according to the flesh, which is your old condition, he says, if you live according to the flesh, it seems like it's going to bring life to you, but it really brings death. But if you live according to the Spirit, it seems like it's going to bring death to you. And we'll get to that in a second. But it really brings life. What Paul is doing is he's, he's really expounding on what Jesus taught back in Luke chapter 9. Jesus said this, For whoever would, say, or, sorry, who, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus is saying it's, it's counterintuitive, but it seems like if you try to live for yourself, you're going to save it, but you actually lose it. But if you give yourself away and you die to yourself for me, you'll actually gain your life. It, it seems counterintuitive, but it's actually the gospel way. It's death leading to life. And so Paul reminds us here that this, this process of death is an active death. He, he uses a present active command here. He says, put to death. Not wait for the death, not consider the death, not, you know, maybe negotiate with death, but put to death. He makes it really clear. Kill it. Kill it. He's saying, listen, he's saying freedom means you have to put to death your flesh. If you lived in Florida for very long at all, you have probably battled, like many of us who've lived here, roaches at some point in your life. I mean, it's just inevitable. There are roaches everywhere in Florida. It doesn't mean your house is dirty. It just means you live in Florida. And so from time to time, you will come to this battle. If you're new to Florida, I'm sorry they didn't tell you this when you moved. But, but years ago, I remember an epic battle that I had in, in our second apartment after we got married, uh, my wife and I, and uh, we, we had been seeing this roach. It, it was a prehistoric roach. It was, it was not one of those little baby roaches. It, it was a prehistoric, outlasting the dinosaurs kind of roach. And somehow it popped in, popped out. I could never catch the thing. And one day, one day we were at the house and I'm sitting on the couch and I hear my wife screaming from the kitchen, Roach! And I'm, okay, let's get up. It's time to go to battle. And so I, I run into the kitchen. I'm trying to figure out where it is. And there it is right in the middle of the floor, staring back at me, daring me, just daring me. And what do you do? You take off your shoe and you start chasing it. I mean, I'm running, I'm crouching, I'm trying to get after this thing. I am doing whatever it takes to take its life. Why? Because my freedom is dependent on its death. I'm not going to be able to sleep at night. If I know that thing is living next to my bed, my freedom is dependent on its death. Death, right? This is what Paul is saying about your sin, that, that there is a relationship between the death of your sin and the life of your freedom. That, 
There, there is no way that you can continue to live in freedom in Christ if you don't deal with the sin that's lurking in your flesh. You have to deal with it. Right? What, what do I mean by that? It means to be, it means as Christians, right? If we put our faith in Jesus, we are being set, or we have been set free from the from the penalty of sin, which means he's he's taken our guilt. We've been set free from the power of sin, which means it's no longer our master, but there still is the presence of sin in your life. Just because you put your faith in Jesus doesn't mean all of a sudden sin is done with. Just because you now follow Jesus doesn't mean you're not going to have struggles. In fact, most of the struggles that you had before you put your faith in Jesus now become suddenly apparent. They stand out to you more than they did before. They show up in ways that you never thought you were struggling. And so those fears that you had, those insecurities that you had, that, that problem with anger and, and the bitterness you're holding on to against those people that wronged you, whatever it is, it's lurking in your heart. And Paul is saying, you have to deal with it. You have to deal with it. Now, some of us, if you're like me, you struggle to, to run right to dealing with sin. Your first response is usually, I'll just deal with that later. Right? I'll put that to the side and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repress it. I'm, I'm going to put it off on the to-do list maybe down the road. But right now I got some other issues I'm working with and maybe God will bring it back to my attention. But what Paul is saying is this, this is urgent. It's not a repressing the sin for another time. It's repenting from your sin. It's repenting. It's, it's actually the complete opposite of hiding from sin. It's bringing your sin out into the open. It's, it's saying that I know this is in my life, and if I don't deal with it, it's going to be a danger to me. And so I'm going to bring it out. I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to confess it. I'm going to pray through it. I'm going to invite people in my community into it to, to say, hey, I'm struggling with this. Can, can you pray for me? Can you uh, give me advice if I need advice? Can, can you wrestle with me about whatever I need to figure out in this? I don't know, but I'm going to deal with it out in the open. Because our sins, if you leave them hiding in the cupboard like the roaches, they're just going to continue to multiply. You, you, have, to, you have to bring it out and deal with it. And when you deal with it, there, there's these other things that start to pop up. And this is what happens. Underneath this slavery to the flesh is a slavery to fear. Let's look at that next. Slaves to fear. Look at verse 14. Look at what Paul says. He says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now this is amazing. Uh, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? If you've been around in church for a while, especially in charismatic circles like I've been around, you, you hear that phrase, right? Led by the Spirit is used often for different things. I mean, it could be, I need to be led by the Spirit to, to choose a spouse or to to know which job to take, or uh, I got to make a decision that's really hard that I don't know, and I need God to, to lead me in that, or, or it might mean that the worship service was led by the Spirit. You know, we, we use that phrase for various things, and, and those can be appropriate, but what Paul is saying here is not anything related to discernment. When Paul in this passage talks about being led by the Spirit, it's almost a direct synonym to put to death the deeds of the flesh. 
See, what he's saying is he's contrasting being led by your flesh, which is sinful, to being led by the Spirit, which is holy. You see the difference? He's saying you're choosing a different path of life. And so being led by the Spirit means I'm being led to hate what the Spirit hates, which is sin. And I'm being led to love what the Spirit loves, which is Jesus. Right? So it's, it's a complete redirection. It's a completely different path. He's saying those who are led by the Spirit, who, who go down the Spirit's path, are being led in a direction that's defined by their new identity. They're no longer slaves. They're sons. They're sons. And so they're led as sons by the Spirit of sonship. You catch that? Now pause for a second. Some of you might, ladies in the room, you might be hearing this and you're thinking, sons, 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 what, what is Paul talking about? Is he some kind of chauvinistic apostle? What is this? Actually, what Paul is doing when he's using this language of sons in the Roman society, he, he's pushing against their culture that would, would uh, marginalize women. Because in their society, adoption meant this. It meant the adopted male was now the new heir of the family's inheritance. And so Paul, speaking to this church full of men and women, he's saying to them, he's saying, all of you, men and women, you are all now sons. He's saying you all, even though the society doesn't give you that kind of an inheritance, that kind of status or position, all of you now have that status. And so he's not talking about male and female here. He's talking about a social status that comes from the adoption. Right? And so he's, he's defining this as two different ways of living. You can live like a slave or you can live like a son. And listen, just because you're a son, just because you have that status in the family, doesn't mean you live that way. He's saying, you, you know, that there is a way, a spirit of slavery, as he says, or a spirit of sonship. One is full of fear, the other's full of faith. One is performance based. The other is promise-based. One is an abusive tyrant. The other is a loving father. You catch that? He's saying these are completely different ways of living. And he's inviting you into the way of sonship. See, the Spirit moves us from this fear-driven faith to family. To family. You hear that? It's family. Uh, Years ago, when our kids were a little younger, you know, it was bedtime, and I don't remember what was going on other than we're trying to get the kids ready for bed. And, and bedtime, if you have young kids, is just chaos. And, and it's full of surprises. There's all kinds of surprises. And so we're, it was one of the good nights, actually. It, it, it was going well. Uh, everybody had their pajamas on. Their teeth were brushed. We actually had enough time to read a book and pray together. And so it was one of those bedtime miracles. Like, everything actually happened the way we thought it might happen. And so I put them to bed, all three girls, they're in the bed, they're, they're laying down, and I walk away, and 30 minutes later, I still hear some talking. But it's not everybody talking, I hear just one, one little girl, Sophia, she's whispering in there by herself, and, and it sounded a little suspicious. Like it sounded, she, she just had a, a sound, you could tell as a parent, something is off here. And so I go check, and I open up the door, and right in front of me, Sophia is just covered in baby lotion 
covered in baby. Like, it's on her hands, it's in her hair, it's all over her clothes, it's on the floor, it's on the wall, it's all over her sister who's sleeping. It is everywhere in the room. And you see this big jug of baby lotion that we had, and she had taken the top off and just started dumping it everywhere. And, and so here she is in the middle of the room, covered in baby lotion. She looks at me with these eyes of terror, like, oh no, I'm caught. And you could just tell, circling through her mind in some form was, am I going to get in trouble? What, what is daddy going to do? And I wish I could say this was always my response, but in that moment, I just, I just sensed a, I needed to respond different. And so I just laughed and I said, sweetie, this, this is really silly. We need to clean up and, and you know, get, get this together. But daddy loves you. You're, you're all right. And she just melted, like all the fear melted. And I just sensed that this, this is the love of your father. It, it's not fear driven. It, it's, it's really family driven. This is what your father feels. This is what your father senses towards you. This is what your father has affection towards you about. Right? So many of us are living in this performance-based fear where we've been adopted as sons, technically, but we're living like slaves. We're still living under the bondage of performance of what can I give to God? How can I prove myself to God? How can I do enough for God? How can I make sure I, I show that I really care and that I'm serious or whatever it is, right? We, we fail and we feel his fury and we, we do well and we feel his love. I mean, it comes out in all kinds of subtle ways, right? This fear. I mean, things like this. You, you have to look good in front of others. You're defensive if anyone expresses your weaknesses. You're strong-willed with your ideas and your agenda. You're unable to listen or even consider others. Your solution to failure is just to try harder, as if it's all up to you. Your hobby, your hobby is to tear others down, hoping that you can lift yourself up and make yourself feel better. You look for deep approval in relationships or titles or possessions or positions, these things really over-matter to you. Right? At, at the core of these things, our struggle with fear is really a, a deep insecurity with God. I mean, if we're honest, we're, we're afraid that God is going to catch us in our mess. But think about how silly that is for me to think of that and for you to think of that when God knows all of it. Like, he doesn't have to open the door and, and surprise you with whatever you had. He already knows you better than you know you. He knows all of your mess. He knows the messes in you that you don't even know about. He knows all of it. And even in the mess that you have created in your life, whatever that sin is, whatever the struggles are, all of the mess that is you, he knows it and he moves towards you. Right? The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He moved towards us in our sin, in our mess. It wasn't, I need you to clean up the mess and then you can come to me. No, it's I see you in the mess and I'm going to come clean you. I'm going to move towards you in whatever the thing is that's happening in your life. And so the gospel is not some fear-driven self-improvement program. It's really God creating family. That's what it is. 
It's God saying, I, I want to bring you in. I want to adopt you in to change your status. And that status is completely changed forever. It's the father declaring, you are my child. You're my child. You're no longer a slave to another master. You are in this household. This is your home. See, the only way we can get set free from that fear is, is to have this kind of deep security in our sonship. And that's what I want to look at next. This last part is, is incredible. The sons of the father, look at what he says here in verse 15. This, this is what he says. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Like that, that was your old life. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry. Here it is. Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness within our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That title, Abba, many of you have probably heard before, but if you're new to the Bible, that title is Aramaic. It's a a title that's often translated either daddy or papa. It's different than father. It's, It's much more intimate. It's the kind of thing that you would say as a young child looking up to your your hero. You're looking up to someone that you just adore. You have this intimate, close relationship with your papa. That's what the language means. And before Jesus came and, and prayed like that, no one ever used this kind of language for God. Like when Jesus was teaching the disciples, when they asked him to teach them to pray, and Jesus says, our father... I guarantee you people opened their eyes and were like, what did he just say? Because people didn't pray like that. People, people had kind of a respectable distance between them and God. God was high and lifted up and I am down here. And Jesus says, our father, our father. And then you go to the end of his life and he's in, in the Garden of Gethsemane getting ready to be crucified and he prays to the father and he says, Abba. So he takes it one step further. Now he's not just calling God Father. He's saying, you're my daddy. You're my intimate, close, personal father. This this is radical. Jesus is modeling for us. And here Paul picks up on it again. He's modeling for us a relationship that has been completely transformed. Right? He's saying because the relationship is transformed, it means we have something different. We've received something different. We, we are children. That means we are heirs, is what he's saying. Heirs of what? Heirs of God himself. God himself. Right? He is ours. We are his. What, what we receive in the gospel of adoption is we receive God. And because he's ours, he says there's nothing to fear. It's not a spirit of slavery. It is a spirit of sonship. It's a spirit that that completely and radically transforms how he relates to you. Sonship means we are forever secure. Forever secure. Author Eugene Peterson, he tells the story of some of his friends, uh, Fred and Cheryl, who, when he wrote this, which was a while ago, they they had uh, adopted a child 35 years prior and they went overseas to adopt the child, and uh, this little girl named Addie, she was five years, when, five years old when she was adopted, and her parents were killed in a car accident, and she got put into an orphanage, and she lived in the orphanage for years before getting placed with a family. And he was telling the story of how they were reminiscing about the first meal that they had together in their home. 
They were reminiscing about what it was like to have her in the home with their two teenage boys, and they had dinner around the table, and everyone was so excited to celebrate their first night together. And they had, you know, put out this incredible spread. She said they had pork chops and mashed potatoes and all these vegetables and dessert, and it was incredible. And so everybody gathers around the table, and Addie had never seen this much food in years. She'd been living in the orphanage, hadn't seen this, and so her eyes are wide open. She's watching, like, what do I do at this kind of table? And then when they pray and eat, her, her you know, two teenage brothers now, they're diving in and they're eating like teenage boys do. They're just consuming as much as they can. They're filling up their plates, eating, filling up their plates, eating. And, and so she starts to get overwhelmed. And uh, Cheryl, the mom, she, she looks and she sees there's something just off. She, she looks uncomfortable and she senses it, it's probably the disappearing food. And the people at the orphanage told her that, that often if they ran out of food, they would go a day or two without food. And so disappearing food for Addie meant there wasn't going to be food for a while. And so she decides to take her by the hand. She walks her into the kitchen to show her what's in the kitchen. And this is what she said. She took her to the refrigerator and showed her the bottles of milk and the orange juice, the fresh vegetables, the jars of jelly and jam and peanut butter, a carton of eggs and a package of bacon, she took her to the pantry with bins of potatoes, onions, and squash, and shells of canned goods, tomatoes, and peaches, and pickles. And she went step by step through every part of the kitchen and showed her everything that they had to remind her that you're no longer an orphan. That this is not, that, that is not where you live. This is where you live. You live in our home. And she said this, she told her daughter, there's no need to fear your family now. Your family now. Do you hear that? This is what the gospel is saying to us. The miracle of the gospel is that God gave his own son so that we could be received as sons in the family. So that every single one of us, we could be received as sons, right? This son who came from heaven to earth, he lived the perfect life of a son. And then when he was baptized in the Jordan, the crowds heard the voice of the father from the clouds saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Right? These are words of affirmation from the father towards his son saying, there's not one thing in you that, that I'm disappointed about. There's not a single thing that I frown over. I am completely and overwhelmingly in love with you. And then that son takes his life to the cross, gives himself for us, dying the death of a slave on the cross so that he can make us sons taking all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our obligations, all of our burdens, everything we failed, taking it upon himself so that he could give to us all of his status. So that the Father can say over us what he said over the Son on the cross. He says over you, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Can you hear him say it over you? Can you hear him say it over your failure? Well pleased. Can you hear him say it over your shame? Well pleased. Can you hear him say it over your guilt in the past? Well pleased. Can you hear him say it over your future sins that you've yet to commit? Well pleased. This is what the Father is saying over you, singing over you because of his son Jesus. 
These are the words we live under, the words of our Father, well-pleased. See, sonship is secure because of the Father's love in Christ. Nothing earned, only received. No fear, only freedom. This is what it means to be brought in. You've been set free from your old life, this, this bondage to slavery and sin, to now you're free as a son. Are you living like a son today? Are you, are you living with those words washing over your soul? I am well pleased with you. I am well pleased with you. Maybe you're here this morning and as we close, you know, you, you, you are a Christian. You put your faith in Jesus. But, but just like Paul's saying, we can slip back into this spirit of slavery, this, this spirit of fear. And you start to live like you're not really who you are. What I, what I want to encourage you in this morning is that God is inviting you back in to live in the household as a son and daughter. To say that this is who I am. I, I am a child of God who, who has everything that the rights and privileges of sonship require and, and have. This is my identity. But maybe you're here this morning and, and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian and you're wrestling with your faith and trying to figure out what do I believe? And I've heard about God and I've heard about Jesus and, and there's kind of this vague sense that God has a requirement out there for you and, and you vaguely realize I don't meet it. But I don't know what to do about that. Here is the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is not that you come to God with all of your life figured out and all of the things that you're going to do to prove to him that you care. The good news of the gospel is that he sent somebody for you to do that for you. He sent a son who was a perfect son so that you could be a perfect child. Not because of what you've done, but because of what he did. And so all he does is invite you in to receive that. To receive this spirit of sonship. To, to have your status completely transformed. To where there's not some God out there who's waiting to get you. But there's a God who's inviting you in. Because he loves you with all your mess. Let's pray. Father. Heavenly Father. Gracious Daddy, we ask that you would move upon our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit to remove that spirit of fear and bondage and slavery to our past and to our guilt, our shame, to all that burdens us and remind us, fill us with the spirit of sonship. Empower us to live in that strength. Empower us to live with that confidence, with that boldness. As we turn away from our sin, we put to death the old life and live fully in the new life. Help us to do that by faith, by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet.